Well, I was thinking about something pretty funny as I prepared for today's sermon. At least, it's funny in retrospect, decades later. I went to a bit of a rough junior high school. I didn't know it at the time, um, but apparently my school was on the wrong side of the tracks, as they say. And though it was years before I had any idea about my junior high school's reputation, there was one incident the first week of seventh grade that should have given me a clue. By the way, if you're in seventh grade right now, just know you are so loved and you will get through this. Seventh grade is literally probably the worst uh, year you could possibly have. It is just this horrible, hormone-riddled time in our lives. So hang in there, seventh graders. We've got your backs. It will get better. So anyway, there I am. I'm in the first week of junior high school, and I'm standing in the cafeteria all alone because all of my friends who've matriculated from elementary school to junior high school with me got the coveted first period uh, lunch period. I got second period, so I had no one. I knew no one. So I'm standing there all alone in the cafeteria, and up walks this tough-talking eighth-grade girl named Michelle, who was all attitude. And she takes one look at me with my bad haircut and my cute little lunchbox, which, if I was a betting woman, I would say probably had a picture of Sean Cassidy on the front of it. And she looks at me and she says, ah, look at the little baby. Where are all your little baby friends? And I was like, huh, okay, so this is going, this is starting off well. So she proceeds to follow me and sit down with me at my table where I'm sitting all by myself and just hurl insults at me as her girlfriends all laugh hysterically like it's the funniest thing they've ever seen. And apparently I didn't cry or seem offended enough. And so she finally says, you don't like me, do you? Now I'm smart enough not to answer that question. And the next thing she says to me is, you want to fight? Um, no, actually. But Michelle doesn't let up. I told you Lincoln was kind of a, a rough junior high school. And trust me when I tell you, I saw a lot of fights in my day. But I never expected to be in one, and certainly not three days into junior high school. So there's apparently, there was this, um, this church right across the street from the junior high school that had a playground in the back. And if you wanted to fight, this is where you went. And so here I am, three days into junior high, being called out by the baddest girl in junior high school to meet her at the church. Now, I don't know if this was because they thought it was a safe distance away and they wouldn't get in trouble, or maybe they thought all their sins would be forgiven if they were fighting at the church, but nonetheless, here I was being confronted with this scenario. So she calls me out to meet her at the church, and I'm thinking to myself, I know one thing for sure. That is not happening. So I'm supposed to meet her at 4 o'clock. And um, you probably also need to know that my mom happened to teach at the junior high school where I went. And at the end of the day, I'm standing outside waiting for my mom to finish whatever it was she does after school to pick me up and we'll ride home together. And there I am with my little Sean Cassidy lunchbox and up walks Michelle. Now, I'm pretty sure she's not going to beat me up right in front of the school in plain view of the principal's windows, but 
there's some lingering doubt. And so she says all tough like, are you meeting me at the church? And at this point, I sort of just gave up, and I chuckled and said, no. So she turns to me then, and she goes, well, what are you doing? Waiting on your mommy. And I said, well, actually, yeah, but she works here, so I don't have to wait. And her eyes kind of got a little bit big. That stopped her. And she said, well, who's your mom? Now, I kid you not, at that exact moment, you guys, the doors of the junior high school opened, and here emerged my mother in plain view of Michelle, and I said, Mrs. Woodward. And she, her eyes got about the, big, the size of saucers, and she goes, like, a lot of expletives, and then said, that's my English teacher. Now, I have never seen anybody run so fast in all my life, <laughs> and I have never been so glad to see my mother. <laughs> So as I was preparing for the sermon this week, this, this came to me because I thought, you know, Jesus shows up sometimes at just the right moment, including as an English teacher who just happened to look a lot like my mom. <laughs> and you know, it's a good chuckle for me because it was fun to recollect about that. I have no idea what happened to Michelle. But it's been a very, very hard week again here in our lives. You know, Aspen is back to the level red uh, restrictions, no more gatherings, we can't dine out, more lost income, more isolation for people, more illness, more death around the country. We're nearing the 450,000 mark for our COVID deaths. People continue to grieve and feel this sense of loss. And, and even despite the uh, change in our, our national leadership. It seems we had a, a change of power, but not a change of hearts, as partisanship just continues to divide us. And so we come to church, and we want to hear a word of peace. We want to hear some feel of the presence and feel some calm. And instead, we hear about demons and rebuking unclean spirits, and we wonder whether or not our ancient scriptures can even speak to us in our time of chaos sometimes. I mean, we know it's good news, but is it good news for today, for right now, for what I'm going through? Why do I need to hear about a man possessed? Well, one of the things that strikes me is it's good for us to remember that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all offer us a glimpse of their witness to the ministry of Jesus. It's individual, and it's intended for a particular audience that they were writing to. All four writers, for example, start, of course, with Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. They all immediately talk about Jesus spending time in the wilderness and being tempted. All four describe how Jesus then called his disciples and said, come, follow me. And then that's where they part ways. Because at this point, each writer describes how Jesus' public ministry begins, and each one has their own particular focus. It doesn't mean that one's recollection is, is better than the other, or uh, that somebody got it right and somebody got it wrong. It just means that they had a particular focus that they really wanted people to know. It's almost like they were saying, you know, oh, I like this part of the story. And, oh, I think this is really meaningful. So Matthew starts out 
uh, with Jesus teaching the Beatitudes, reminding people what it means to be blessed, live wholeheartedly, as Robert talked about last week. Luke starts out by describing how Jesus was immediately rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth. In the Gospel of John, John describes the miracle at Cana, at the wedding when he turned the water into wine. And in the Gospel of Mark, well, Mark starts out by picking a fight with a demon. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like exactly what we need to hear today. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus begins his ministry not with a sermon, not with a miracle, not with a healing, but stepping into the realm of opposing forces, stepping into the world of good and evil and announcing God is here. Jesus breaks through to the places and spaces where it seems God could never be, good could never be, and he tells evil to get the hell out. The demons immediately know that their time is up. Why? Because when God is in the room, evil has no place, no authority, no staying power. It's a clear message to us that if we stick with Jesus, evil will not rule over us. For Mark, that's the whole story. Jesus is here. God is in your life. All is well. Now, I understand that exercising demons can seem for some people a little bit far-fetched or maybe an ancient way of looking at things that certainly 21st century modern medicine has plenty of explanations for. But I think Jesus is also inviting us this morning to consider something in our day and age, and that is what possesses us? What possesses us? genuinely to consider the demons that possess us as a community, as a nation, as people who are just trying to live this life together on this planet. There are forces that are intent on destroying us, and we need to cast them out. But before we can do that, we have to name them. If we don't, they have authority over us. The demons in our scripture this morning tried to name Jesus. Holy one, they said to him. But this wasn't a sign of respect. They weren't exalting him. They weren't lifting him up. It was an attempt to name him so they would have power over him. Some authority. But Jesus wasn't having it. And neither should we. So let's flip the tables. Let's name our Demons. Call the demons what they are. And we can start with a big one. Unbelief. Now I call this a demon because when we lose our belief in God and our belief in our fellow human beings, we lose faith that anything can be done to solve our problems. And if we don't have faith that things are going to get better, that things will ever change from the circumstances we're experiencing now, then we find ourselves afraid and hopeless. And from there, 
a place of hopelessness and fear, all kinds of things grip us. Greed, jealousy, anger, power hunger, addiction, violence, racism, sexism, classism, intolerance of difference, bullying, terrorism, war, thinking only of ourselves, thinking too much of ourselves, paranoia, conspiracy theorizing, manipulation of information. I could go on and on. When we're in a place of fear, there is a longing. There's a hole that we're trying to just shove with everything that makes us feel more powerful. But when we have the courage to confront those things in our lives, to name them, maybe even to courageously name the things in someone else's life that is being used to diminish us in some way, they immediately have less power over us. It doesn't mean problem solved, of course, but naming the evil is a way of taking back some power over that which does not serve us and might even do us harm. So that's the first step to casting evil out completely and replacing it with love. In our online women's Bible study that we are uh, hosting weekly, we discussed uh, uh, the book of Revelation recently. We're living in times where a lot of people like to talk about the book of Revelation, wondering what in the world does it mean? What does it say to us right now? People have a tendency to read Revelation, by the way, and, and think that it's coming from a place of fear. They see chaos and uncertainty in the world, the events that are playing out, and they think, well, surely Revelation is a sign that something is signaling the end of the world or the end of times. And there, by the way, is a whole commercial industry built around that kind of fear-based thinking. But I want to assert to you this morning that the book of Revelation has less to do about the end of the world and everything to do with the beginning of hope. The book of Revelation was written after the rule of Nero, who has gone down in history as one of the most violently oppressive men in the world. There's a lot to be said about what I think is probably the presence of demons in his life, if you look at it. He poisoned his brother. He tortured and killed his wife. He killed his own mother. And these were just the things he did in his own home, let alone in his empire. He tortured and killed anyone who threatened him. And one of his favorite targets, of course, were the early Christians who lived just a few decades after Jesus. So the book of Revelation sent a message to the people who were living in this horrible time that they could not continue in this vein, that they would not continue this way forever. Revelation says to the people, practice endurance. In this time of tyranny and evil and oppression and murder, Hold tight to your faith in God, because in the end, God will win over these forces. This time you are living in will pass. Have faith. Persist. 
So I love that the Gospel of Mark opens with this kind of battle between good and evil as Jesus casts out the demons from the man at the synagogue. And then we move to the end of our New Testament scriptures and we see another battle between good and evil. This one with allegory and symbolism that depicts both the oppression of the age they're living in, but the possibility of the beauty and the blessing of what is to come. We begin and end our sacred scriptures with good overcoming evil. That is a powerful message for us today. And while our story begins in Mark with Jesus confronting evil and casting it out, Revelation reminds us that no matter what happens, we don't need to be afraid because pain and brokenness are never the final thing. Revelation takes us through some wild and confusing imagery some scary scenes for sure when, when we read them from today's lens, but it winds its way to this message of hope. Here's just one example, Revelation 21, which I love. It says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The book of Revelation is a story of the forces of good overcoming the forces of evil. It's the promise that you might have to confront bad people and hard things, but you have a savior who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the infinite, the, the, the macro to your micro story. There is a bigger picture. And our limited way of seeing things keeps us from, from knowing that sometimes, but God is saying when we stick with the image of God with us, knowing God promises something better, we will know that God always wins. Love always wins. So do we need to confront the brokenness that exists in the world? Absolutely. I've told you this, this snippet before, but it bears repeating. In one interpretation of the sacred ancient scriptures of Judaism, the, not scriptures, but interpretations of Judaism, this is what's written in one. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. There is so much work to be done. There is evil in the world, some of it in our own hearts. We need to name it, identify it, and then go forth with the courage and the confidence to do the work 
while we have the great good fortune to be on this earth to do it. One of my favorite songs is uh, by the singer-songwriter Philip Phillips, a popular song called Home. The lyrics go like this. Settle down, it'll all be clear. Don't pay no mind to the demons, they fill you with fear. The trouble, it might drag you down, but if you get lost, you can always be found. Just know you're not alone. I'm gonna make this place your home. This earth is our home, for now. Evil doesn't get to claim it. Evil doesn't get to claim me. When the fear creeps in and the demons come and pick a fight with me, I will remind them who's boss because we are not alone. And as it says in the book of Revelation, those words are trustworthy and true. Amen.